Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Hello, Warbirders. If you enjoy the program and it fills at least part of your day, please consider supporting it. I support the podcasts that I listen to. I hate the idea of setting up subscriptions. I'd rather make more episodes. It's super easy through PayPal at WOWB17, and you will get a shout-out. Now on to today's show. Design and Development Today's episode comes from a listener's suggestion, although I seem to have neglected to record the name of the suggestor. Looking at Soviet aviation during this time frame is always so interesting, but it can also be difficult to understand. Many of the assumptions, especially surrounding big bombers and the theory of strategic bombing, are just not there. There is no bomber mafia pushing this idea that the next war can be won by simply building enough big four-engined heavy bombers and destroying the enemy's factories. When it comes up at all, there is the idea of morale bombing, dropping bombs on population centers in order to deplete the enemy's morale while at the same time boosting your own. Also, when we look at Allied Aviation companies and the Air Forces, we never, unless I've missed something, have to say that the officers and designers were rounded up in a purge and sent to whatever the British and American equivalent of Siberia or the Gulag would be. I'm not going to mention possible place names for fear of insulting someone. And finally, neither the USA or UK had to deal with the same kind of chaos that the Russian aircraft industry underwent. Yes, the UK was certainly bombed, but territory was not invaded and factories did not have to be broken up, packed up, and shipped out to an area far away from the approaching enemy and then set up again, sometimes in an open field in order to start making planes again as soon as possible. The USA was not even bombed, and so had so many advantages in building aircraft as the arsenal of democracy. And finally, for a so-called planned economy, Soviet Russia had a very chaotic supply chain that led to plenty of improvisation in order to get the job done, but it was not always done effectively, and certainly not efficiently. Alright, so with the stage all set, let's get to the story of this big Russian bomber. So the Petyakov PE-8 was meant as a replacement for the veritable Tupolev TB-3 and began with a request in 1934 from the Soviet Air Forces for a bomber that could fly 270 miles per hour or faster while carrying 4,400 pounds of bombs with a range of 2,800 miles. The job was given to the Tupolev Design Bureau and then Andrei Tupolov delegated the work to a team led by Vladimir Petyakov. The project was given an internal designation that I'm not even going to mention, as the aircraft will already be renamed mid-course and things are going to be confusing enough. The Soviet Air Force called it the TB-7, so we'll stick with that designation for now. Petyakov drew up a four-engined, mid-winged cantilever monoplane that, unlike many replacements or upgraded aircraft, he didn't really begin with the existing TB-3 bomber as a jumping-off place to begin his designing. The older bomber was very angular or boxy with corrugated skin 
which, while providing strength, also generated tons of drag. So he borrowed from another type, the Tupolev SB, which was a high-speed, twin-engined, three-seat bomber with stressed skin, first flown earlier in that same year of 1934. Prototypes The resulting prototype was built mainly of duraluminum with two steel spars in the wings and the ailerons were fabric-covered. Unlike most heavy bombers of the day, the two pilots did not sit side by side, but in tandem fashion, one in front of the other, and these stations were offset slightly to the left. It was powered by four Mikulin AM34FRN engines, which were liquid-cooled V12s that produced about 800 horsepower each. Space was provided inside the fuselage for a fifth engine, which provided power to a system which was known as the Central Supercharging Unit, or the acronym ATSN2. This fifth engine would turn a blower to provide boost air to the other four engines out on the wings. In the nose sat the bombardier, who also operated a turret armed with a 20mm cannon. The dorsal gunner sat behind the ATSN engine and operated a 7.62mm machine gun. The tail gunner operated a power turret with another machine gun. Unlike tail gun installations I've seen everywhere else, he had his own little hatch under the gun to get in his turret. Could he move about internally? I don't actually know. But the weirdest of all the manually operated cannon positions were the ones built into the rear of each inner engine nacelle. You'll have to check out the images on the Facebook page or really try to visualize this because it's something that we don't really see on any other heavy bomber. When on the ground, these gunners could get into their positions via a hatch in the upper wing surface or they could get in there from the main fuselage by passing through the inside of the wing. There was a big internal bomb bay that could accommodate 8,800 pounds of bombs and there was an external rack under each wing that could carry 1,100 pounds. On the 27th of December 1936, the first prototype took to the air with test pilot M.M. Gromov at the controls. Although the ATSN supercharging system hadn't been installed yet, Gromov was pleased with the performance of the aircraft. In August of the following year, 1937, updated main engines were installed, as was the ATSN supercharging system. This time there was trouble with the outer engines becoming overheated, and also Gromov found that the rudder response was poor. To fix the engine cooling problem, they employed a solution that again, I've never heard of. They installed the outer and inner radiators, both in a single deep duct under the inner engine's nacelle. It would seem to me that this would be more dangerous as a hit in that area would disrupt the cooling system of both engines on the same side, but that's what they did. They also enlarged the rudder. While the first prototype was being tested and adapted, the construction of a whole new prototype began concurrently in April of 1936. The fuselage was widened by about 4 inches, the tail section was modified again to improve rudder function and to reduce drag. 
An autopilot was added, even more powerful engines were installed, and the landing gear was upgraded. Two new fuel tanks were installed to increase range, and the defensive armament was refined. The bomb bay was enlarged to allow the space to carry a giant 11,000-pound bomb known as the FAB-5000. The whole program timetable was disrupted, you might say, when Petyakov and the whole Central Aerodynamic Institute was arrested in October 1937 during what was known as the Great Purge. They were charged with aiding the Russian fascist party, sabotage, espionage, and some were executed. Petyakov was lucky to be just sent to prison, where he remained until 1939. Meanwhile, his second prototype did make its first flight on the 26th of July 1938. The prototype was supposed to be the model for production, but getting down to building the bomber in numbers was, you know, slowed down by the arresting and show trials and executing and imprisoning thing, leaving the aviation and many other Russian industries in shambles. There weren't enough resources or workers, and even though the factory was actually set up to build, no one got around to sending them the official order until 1939. Production Russian supply chains were a mess, causing great difficulty in producing the bomber in any numbers once the work actually got started at Kazan Factory Number 124, which was building the new bomber. Firstly, sufficient components for the ATSN superchargers were just not available, so only four aircraft were built with the system before the production line was shut down, while management figured out what to do. Even worse, the production of the type of engines meant for the aircraft was also cancelled. What followed was a dizzying array of various engines being tried on various individual aircraft, including some engines that were diesel, and I'm just not going to get into it. The German invasion of Russia in June 1941 also slowed down production, but not in the way that you would think. Factory number 124 was also building a light and fast dive bomber known as the PE-2, which, due to the invasion, was now needed for tactical reasons in a big way, and so resources were shifted away from the big bomber, which was now considered a low-priority project. The bomber was also now known as the PE-8. Now, I warned you that there was going to be a name change, and that occurred after Petyakov was killed in a crash of one of those PE-2s, and all of his designed aircraft were renamed PEs after him in his honor. He was also awarded the Stalin Prize and two Orders of Lenin and an Order of the Red Star, which is pretty good for a guy who just got out of jail for treason. Finally, the engine procurement situation settled down when the 1,850 horsepower Schetzhoff AS-82 radial engine was selected and went into production in late 1942. The ASH-82 was a 14-cylinder, two-row, air-cooled radial engine, which had its genesis as a licensed version of the Wright R-1820 Cyclone. Being a very different engine than the original liquid-cooled ones, the gun turrets in the rear of the engine nacelles had to be scrapped, 
but they were not replaced by any other guns, so the aircraft became more vulnerable in a very dangerous neighborhood. In 1944, the last few PE-8s on the production line were completed as PE-80Ns, or Special Mission Versions. They had a different engine again, and were set up as VIP transports with seats for 12. When production ceased, only 93 PE-8s had been built. What a different situation compared to the West, where production of four-engine bombers ramped up to such an extent that they were building multiple birds an hour, and in the end, they didn't know what to do with them, and some went straight from the factories to the scrap heap. Before we look at operational history, I'd like to take a minute to tell you about Magic Mind. You all know that podcasting is not my day job, and so I get up between 5 and 6 a.m. to produce these episodes before work or other activities, and much too much coffee is involved. I've been trying to cut it back, and lately my family and I have been trying a product called Magic Mind. I'm really noticing a difference, even though I was very skeptical before trying it. I take one shot in the morning, and the matcha, which is a kind of green tea, helps extend the effects of my morning coffee to give me longer-lasting alertness. And this stuff is really delicious. The other compounds help to increase physical and mental endurance, and most importantly for we folks in our 40s and 50s or beyond, it enhances mental clarity. I find I don't even need my usual afternoon coffee anymore. I'm even able to stay up awake with my wife in the evening to watch a movie, and this is usually a struggle for me. She's also happy as these shots contain turmeric, which she's always trying to get me to add to our food, but I dislike it. But as I said before, these shots taste great. Magic Mind has created a special offer for me to share with you warbirders. You get up to 56% off your first subscription in the next 10 days and 20% off your one-time purchase with the code WARBIRDS20. You can get it at magicminds.com warbirds and redeem the discount code WARBIRDS20. But you gotta hurry up. The 50% discount only lasts 10 days from our episode airing date. Look for the link in the program notes and on all the Warbird socials. Now on to operational history. When Germany invaded Russia on the 22nd of June 1941, only one squadron was supplied with PE-8s, and they had only nine, and they weren't ready for combat. Two were subsequently destroyed during raids, which left seven. Stalin demanded an attack deep inside Germany as a morale raid, and so after some rushed planning and training, eight PE-8s, I guess they scraped together another one somewhere, and a formation of twin-engined Yermolevs, REL-2s, departed to bomb Berlin on the evening of August 10. Now, we're used to stories of initial bombing raids going poorly, but this raid was a disaster of biblical proportions. One of the bombers crashed immediately after takeoff due to an engine failure. The commander of the formation, Mikhail Vodpianov's aircraft was attacked by, in quotations, friendly Soviet Navy I-16 fighters. They shot out one of his engines before the confusion was cleared up, but he continued on nonetheless to Berlin. Flak punctured his fuel tanks and he was forced to crash land his aircraft in Estonia. 
Only half of the PE-8s made it to Berlin, and only two made it back to base afterwards. Subsequent missions in August caused the loss of seven more PE-8s, effectively wiping out the regiment. In October, the regiment was supplied with 14 new machines from the factory, and from this month to spring 1942, the unit flew night raids on German cities as well as Russian cities that were occupied by Germany. Losses were high, with bombers being lost as fast as they could be replaced. During 1942, tactics were changed with less emphasis on morale bombing of cities and more effort to hit transportation centers, bridges, airfields, and troop concentrations. In July 1943, 18 machines were on hand for the Battle of Kursk, and these were used to attack targets in the German rear areas at night having some success until the Luftwaffe moved units of night fighters into the area, where with the aid of ground-based radar vectoring, they shot down many of the machines. It didn't help that the PE-8s had no flame-dampening equipment, meaning that if the Luftwaffe night fighters could be radar vectored into the general area of the Russian bombers, then the night fighter pilots would be drawn to the exhaust flames like moths for the kill. Although PE-8 production kept up with the pace of losses, it did so just barely. And I can't see evidence that they ever had more than 20 serviceable machines on hand at any one time. In spring 1944, the PE-8s began to be supplemented by Lend-Lease B-25 Mitchells, and in August the PE-8s flew their last combat mission as the units converted fully to B-25s. PE-8 did some notable non-combat flying when it transported Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov and his delegation to London and then to Washington, D.C. and then back to Moscow in 1942. No account of the PE-8 would be complete without a look at the FAB-5000 giant bomb that only this aircraft could carry. Unlike the British super bombs of World War II that were armored and designed to dig deep before exploding... This Russian version was a thin-cased bomb packed with TNT, RDX, and aluminum powder that would rely on airburst to knock things down. In one test that could have been named Operation Paul Bunyan, 600 trees were knocked down by one bomb with a blast radius of 100 meters. The first combat use of the FAB-5000 occurred on the night of 28 April 1943 when one was dropped on some fortifications at Konigsberg. The shockwave shook up the delivering PE-8 bomber even though it was at 20,000 feet. Under 100 FAB-5000s were built and they were dropped on railway depots, fuel dumps and troop concentrations with the last one being dropped on a railway station in Ukraine in March 1944. Survivors After the war, PE-8s were used as a testbed for various new engines and several were outfitted for polar exploration. They were painted orange, their weapons were removed and had extra fuel tanks installed. These were operated until the late 1950s. I do not know if any PE-8s survive anywhere. If any of you listeners out there are aware, please let me know, and I'll pass that one on. Thanks again to all who support the podcast via PayPal at WOWB17, and if you haven't, please consider. 
If you like to watch as well as listen, check out the YouTube channel. You can also check out some of the photos of what we've been talking about on the Facebook page. Until next time. Thank you.